Hi, today we're reading 1 Samuel, chapter 25, beginning on page 251. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, so he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are turning away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to the men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you strap on your swords. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife. David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, Go on ahead. I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her and she met them. David had just said... It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. 
He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord had sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to your, my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of avenging himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel and they were both his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galem. Well, hello everyone. My name's Nick. I am your pastor here at 6pm and it's such a joy to be with you, a joy to open the word with you. Let's, let's pray before we get into it. Almighty God, please, would you, would you lift our eyes to Jesus? Would you exalt him tonight in our community? Would you feed our souls through your, your word? Amen. 
Now, learning to trust God in this messy life that we live in isn't easy because you don't learn to trust God in the moments where things are all sunshines and daisies and rainbows. Those are wonderful moments in life, often a gift from God, but it's not in those moments where things are wonderful that you learn to trust God. It's in the deep, dark valleys. It's in the hard moments that your faith is tested The tricky thing is we don't really like pain. We don't really like suffering. We'd prefer to avoid the refining fire. Say, yes, God, we would love to be holy. We'd love to be all in for you. But if we could just do it on my own terms, that would be wonderful. Often the people that you meet who just ooze a deep trust in God are the people who have ironically been experienced more suffering in this world than the usual person. Let me tell you about Paul the Magician. He sounds like a character from the Bible, but he's not. He's just a, a 70-something-year-old man that I met at my old church. He, he's a magician where he goes around to kids' parties, and he does sweet, cool little magic tricks and makes all the kids go, wow. You know, he showed me some of his balloon animal tricks. I was like, wow, this guy's really good. Basically, he, he's, a, he's got a heart of a pastor. He spent his entire life serving in the church, but he intentionally pursued this career in, in magic so that he could support himself, so that he could simply just be present within the community of God and love people. And as you listen to his story, you, think, you just realize that he's been through some stuff, through death, through pain, through poverty, and yet he's a man who trusts God like no one else I've ever met. I met him because he goes to a different church in the morning, but started coming to my previous church in the evening just because he wanted to love on some younger guys and walk with them. He's an amazing man of faith, but his faith was born out of difficulty. And that's because our crisis, our suffering, they're an usher that that draws us into the presence of God in a way that a nice season can't. It's when we get brought into these dark moments that God actually reveals to us what it means to truly hold on to Him. The problem is I, I don't think we're very good, at least maybe I'm not very good, at dealing with difficult moments and doing it in a way that holds tightly onto God. You ever heard the, the, like the adrenaline response of fight, flight, or freeze? I think we're allowed to say freeze now. Is that right? Yeah, cool. Thank you, Rachel. That's good. Fight, flight, or freeze. Here's the Christian edition. Here's what we do when we hit difficulty in life. There's the fight Christian, the fix-it-myself Christian. You encounter a problem in life, and you attack it head-on in your own strength. You solve the issue, you conquer the problem, and then afterwards, once you've come out the dark valley, you go, oh, God, thanks so much for making me so awesome to conquer all my problems in my own strength. Is anyone feeling seen right now? I've been there, right? You, you remember God after the fact because you're just so immersed in solving things yourself. That's the fight Christian. There's the flight Christian, also known as quote a Bible verse, smile and stress until the problem goes away. <laughs> you remove yourself from the problem. You get away from anything that's uncomfortable. We like to pray with Jesus. Father, please take this cup from me. But we don't follow through with the prayer when he says, but not my will, but yours. We just don't want the hard stuff. And so we just kind of retreat into a ball hope for things to be better and come out the other side. And then there's the freeze Christian or the I prayed about it Christian who ends up spiraling in despair or anxiety out of overwhelm. We we gave it over to God in a moment, but then we start to ruminate on our issues and we actually leave God out the problem, leave God out of our issues. And God doesn't actually get a thought till we're out of our crisis. And we just kind of sit there in this too stressed to be blessed moment where we just live in the, the darkness until hopefully God lifts us out of it. Am I here? Is anyone feeling me on this? One of these, I think we have a big, big belief in God. We have wonderful theology that makes sense of our whole life and all our experience. But so often our practical response 
doesn't match what we believe. Instead of fight, flight, or freeze, we need faith. We need to learn what it means to sit in some dark moments because they will come if they haven't already. And in that place, trust in God because that is the place that we become more like Jesus. And ironically, like my friend Paul the magician, that is the place where our faith and our joy and our contentment is found. Not in the easy, but in the difficult. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was to go into the Bible to try and find somewhere to learn what it means to trust God, I would probably go to the Psalms, a bunch of songs and poems written by all sorts of people, capturing that human experience of seeking to follow God in a messy world. The Psalms are brilliant, and the majority of them are written by King David, right? So, you could go to the Psalms and you can catch hold of these moments where people are going to God, but equally as we sit in 1 Samuel and follow the life of David, we get an opportunity to see the the process work out in his life. How did this king who is described as a man after God's own heart, how did he become that person who trusts deeply in God? Because he went through some stuff and made some mistakes. And that's where we are here. We're in chapter 25. Chapter 24 you get cheeky, David. Saul's trying to kill him. Saul finds himself napping, and David gets an opportunity to have Saul in his hands. He could have put him to death, solved all his problems. But he didn't do that. Instead, he got his dagger out, cut off a little bit of his robe. So, the next day, when he came across Saul, he was like, looksy, looksy, I could have killed you. It's like, you get the sense that he's a bit cheeky, right? He's just trying to play tricks. Then you get to chapter 26, right after our passage here, similar situation. Saul is put into the hands of David, and David has every opportunity to do away with him. But gone is the tricksy, I'm awesome kind of mentality of David. Instead is this deep reverence for the Lord's anointed and an unwillingness to go beyond what God has done. What changed between chapter 24 and chapter 26? Chapter 25. That's not a trick question, it's just basic maths, right? We have this this situation where we see David has learned what it means to trust deeply in God. But if you were following along with the Bible reading, it was a bit weird, right? Let me summarize this story for you. We've got David and his 600 sweaty soldiers roaming the lands trying to avoid being killed by Saul. Along the way, they did some good things, protected some sheep, that was good, but they're hungry. So, they come to one of the rich guys, you know, he's got a lot of sheep, what was it? Verse, verse 2, he had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. Does anyone have goats or sheep here? No one wealthy like Nabal, that's for sure. He, he protects Nabal's sheep and just makes a simple request. He comes, he says, look, my guys are hungry. Could we, you know, could you bring us over, give us something to eat? That'd be really, really helpful. And Nabal has a moment where he just throws it back in David's face. Did you see this? Verse 10. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, I'm cool with it up to this point. Then we get to David. Let me describe to you what David says. It comes later in verse 12 and 13. He gets really upset and he says, each of you strap on your sword. So David and 400 of them get up and they go. And then you come to this point where David in verse 21 and 22, he just seems to just lose it. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. Here's where it gets wild. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belongs to him. You denied me dinner, 
so I will massacre your entire family of males. Overreaction? Like, like a little bit, right? Like, I understand being upset because you're hungry. There's like new, new levels of hangry, right? But that seems like an overreaction, and it is, and we'll get to that. But I think we need to realize that our culture is very different from this culture, okay? Um, this is a bizarre incident. Like, we don't have shepherds running around with sheep in the same way anymore. We don't necessarily have the same customs. There's two things you need to know about this moment in the ancient Near East. One thing, hospitality is key. Hospitality is woven into the, the fabric of their society. If you were encountering a stranger or someone in need, it was your duty to welcome them into your home, to make them a guest of honor, to provide for them. To this day, if you go visit in the Middle East, you will find this is just still woven into the fabric of their society. If you come in need, you will be lavished in love. And so for Nabal to throw this back at David, it's not just a, hey, you did me a service and I don't care. It's a rejection of everything that they're supposed to believe in, right? This is, this is more than a slap in the face. This is, this is some serious problems. Second thing you need to know is that it's an honor and a shame culture. Now, he could have refused to feed David, and that would have been a problem, but instead he chose to shame David. He says, who is this guy? I never heard of him. And he sends a messenger to make sure that everyone knows what he said. And shame demands a response. In this, if you're ashamed, you need to reclaim your honor. You need to vindicate yourself. And so in one sense, you can make sense of what David's going through here, yeah? Like, he, he's got a duty here to deal with the shame. Should he go and murder the small children because he was a little bit upset? No, right? So we're walking a fine line here. We can understand and empathize with David, but we need to recognize that this is wrong. The reason this is wrong is that David sought to take justice into his own hands instead of trusting in God. David sought to take justice into his own hands instead of trusting in God. There are three things that shine out of this passage for how we ought to trust in God. We need to trust the justice of God. We need to trust the, uh, what do we got? The promises of God, and we need to trust the people of God. But right here, we see that David is not trusting in the justice of God. Now, I, I do have a lot of empathy for David because injustice demands an answer. If your heart is not broken as you see people across the world without clean water who are dying because they're denied a basic human right, if you don't feel something as you look at that, there's something broken within you. As you see the human sex trafficking rings around the world and the millions of people who have been enslaved against their will and been sold as property and your heart doesn't skip a beat, there's something wrong inside of you. Injustice is not right. It should fuel something within us. And David is right to feel that weight of injustice. The difference is when we move away from allowing God his place as the judge over all things and we take that role on ourselves. Yes, we do want to fight injustice, and we want to do what we can to remove it and, and deal with it, but we do it because God's heart is to remove injustice. We don't then step into the place of God and take justice upon ourselves, and I think too often that is our response, that when we're upset and angry, and, and particularly when we suffer injustice, we just like, you know, we write people off. We gossip about them. We stop committing and giving to them and loving them because they've annoyed us or they've done something wrong. Perhaps we're not going to go and murder everyone's family. You know, I hope not. If you are planning on murdering a family tonight, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to pray for you. But 
We do take injustice into our own hands sometimes, and that is where David has overstepped. The reason David has overstepped here is because David has been given a promise beyond all promises, right? This isn't just a, a random occurrence in the Bible that you read and you move on. This has come after many, many chapters of God speaking promises to, to David. He saw him as a, a young shepherd boy and said, this is my anointed one. This is the one who will be king. And Abigail gets it. She's an absolute legend, and we'll get to her in a moment. But look at what Abigail says to, to him in verse 28. She says, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. You notice that language of sling after we've got a David who kills Goliath with a sling. This is a woman who understands the promises that were made to David and is trying to actually pull him back to center. David, you're off course. Don't you realize that God will deal with your enemies? You don't need to go on a massacre rampage. He's promised that you'll be the king. He promises that he'll deliver you. He promises that he'll hold on to you and carry you into the future. Your dynasty will last forever. Chill out a bit, dude. That's my summary. Abigail's bringing him back to this promise of a lasting dynasty. And, you know, credit to David, you know, males with swords and anger can sometimes, you know, lose a bit of reason, and she, he could have lost it and continued on this path of rampage, but instead, he hears the Word of God. He hears the promises being reminded to him, and he takes a step back, and he says, Abigail, thank you. I needed to hear this. I'm not going to go and do anything. I'm going to leave this in the hands of God. It's, it's this beautiful moment. But as we take things into the hands of ourselves, instead of trusting in the justice of God, you need to realize that this promise isn't just for David, it's for you. Jesus is the son of David. This lasting dynasty that will continue forever, it's the dynasty of King Jesus, who right now is seated on a throne in heaven, who will be there reigning over all creation until the day that he returns and brings all things to the perfection that, that he's promised. This is a promise for you. So as you encounter that person who has spurned you, as you walk into this dark valley of suffering, as you just experience the injustice of this world and you're tempted to grab your metaphorical sword and slay your metaphorical children, you need to see that you have a promise here. God will come through for you. I'll say this again. Someone needs to hear this. God will come through for you. He sees everything. He has power over everything, and His promise is that He will bring justice through His King Jesus. We get a bit impatient, right? We just want to bring it ourselves right now. But the call of learning to trust God is to sit in the pain and believe that He will come through for us. When you face injustice, look at Jesus, the son of David, who was the only one who didn't deserve injustice and yet who gave himself away completely. When Peter like, whips his sword out and chops the ear off one of the servants who was trying to capture him, Jesus doesn't grab his sword and join. Instead, he says, stop, and he goes and heals the ear of the man who is about to take him to be killed. Jesus, with some of his last breaths as he's hanging on a cross, dying from asphyxiation, chooses to use his breath to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. 
When you feel injustice in your life and you're tempted to take things into your own hands, look at Jesus who gave away all of his rights because he believed that God was doing a bigger and a better thing. And can I tell you, he is doing a bigger and a better thing in your life. There's one day you're going to walk the halls of heaven. You're going to stand face to face with Jesus. And you're going to realize that when he taught us to turn the other cheek, it wasn't because he was weak. It's because he was doing something. When you, you get in heaven and you see that Romans 12 was true, that as we repay evil with good, we're actually heaping burning coals on our enemies' heads because we don't need to take injustice into our own hands. God has got our back. And when you look back at your own journey and all the difficulty and the pain that you went through, you're going to realize that Romans 8.28 was 100% true, that God is working all things, everything, for the good of those who love Him. Push back against that instinct within you to take things into your own hands. We need to learn to trust in the justice of God. Because like the cheeky irony of this story, right? You saw it, verse 36. After David chooses not to go through with his plan, Abigail goes back to Nabal. He was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk, so she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him. He became like stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal. Notice that, the Lord struck Nabal, not David, and he died. Instead of an unjust or an unjust moment where all these innocent men were killed, God delivers his justice and takes the life of this one guilty man. All you need to do is trust him. We need to trust the justice of God. But to trust the justice of God, we need to learn to trust the promises of God. It's one thing to have this vague idea of a God who sits in the sky and who judges all things and will bring all things to right. That's big, it's lofty, it's wonderful, but how does it connect to our day-to-day life? How does it connect to that person who's upsetting you and you just want to react? How does it connect to the season of life that you're in? The answer is the promises of God. The promises of God. Let's have a look at Abigail for a moment. This woman is sensational, right? This woman is full of courage like you wouldn't believe. Verse 12 to 13, we see that David had 600 soldiers with him, right? 200 are staying with the supplies, 400 have got their swords out ready to go, and they're they're storming the front to kill Nabal and his family. And yet, where is Abigail in the middle of this, this reckless charge? Verse 18 to 20, she's collected all of this food, and she comes, verse 20, riding her donkey into a mountain ravine. There was David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. This is a single woman, right, by herself, one woman, in a patriarchal society, going into a ravine as she watches 400 men, 400 men with swords, come storming down, ready to kill her family and her husband, and she has placed herself right in their way because she is determined that David will see the promises of God and turn aside from his injustice. This is a woman who understands the promises of God, who believes the promises of God, and who just takes it into her own hands to become a person of faithfulness. Could you imagine that? I would just be peeing my pants and running the other direction, just going to be honest with you. I would be fearing for my life, even if, you know, it was only 20 guys with swords, let alone 400. And yet she bows down before him and speaks some hard words about her husband, who, by the way, his name's literally Fool. That's a terrible mother, you know? If you're going to have kids, don't name your kid Fool. She, She speaks some hard words about her husband. She doesn't know what the outcome will be, but she trusts the promises of God. 
And so she speaks what we've already talked about to David, verse 28, that you will have a lasting dynasty that God will establish. David has this this breathtaking promise. He just needs to live in that promise. You have a Bible, I'm sure, somewhere in your house or perhaps on your phone. It is of no use to you to have read it once or listened to a single sermon and put it aside to gather dust on your shelf. The promises of God need to live within you. You want to learn to trust God and live with faith and embody holiness and chase after God with your entire life? Take it up and let it just sink within you. Let the promises of God find their way deeply into your heart. Let it be constantly on your mind. Be ready to speak it as moments happen. Be ready to share it with those before you. 2 Corinthians says that every promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have every promise that God is offering to you. But too often we let the heat of the moment and the stress on our shoulders keep us from living out the promises of God and instead we walk in our own strength. And that is a failure. That is where we fall short. Our promise is Jesus. Our promise is Jesus. He's not in heaven having, you know, a nap. (laughs) He's not just chilling out, you know, dawdling and wasting his time. We, we We sang the song, Behold the Wondrous Mystery. There is this great cosmic eternal plan that God has had before the creation of the world to bring restoration, shalom, the peace of God. And you can trust that King Jesus, the greater David, is going to come back and make all things right. We need to set our roots deep in these promises. Philippians 2, 1 to 11 talks about the the path that Jesus took, and it finishes by saying that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's a certainty. But we live right now in a world of uncertainties. So anchor yourself in the certain promises of God. You will never be let down. You're going to go through a lot of stuff in your life, and and in advance, I'm so sorry for what you've been through, what you're going through, or what you will go through. But the promise of God to us is 2 Corinthians 4.17, that our light and momentary troubles are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Your cancer, your broken family, your lost job, your financial stress, your lack of identity, your uncertainty about the future, God calls them light and momentary. And He's not just trying to demean you. He's not saying what you're going through isn't difficult. He's saying that compared to what He has for you, it's tiny. He's saying, please, just keep going. Keep holding on to me. I've got something greater than you could ever imagine. Just persevere. Hold on to Jesus. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be strong. All you need to do is hold on to me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has so much more ahead of us than what we leave behind? Anchor yourself in the promises of God. I heard the story of a builder who um, wasn't very literate. He only learned to read later in life, and so he would be the guy that you would never ask to read the Bible in your Bible study, right? Because he'd just have a panic attack. But he, he spent a lot of time with his hands, so he bought himself a pair of headphones so that he could listen to an audio Bible. And he set his goal within his first few weeks or months of doing this to memorize all of Romans. This semi-illiterate builder had found a way to get the promises of God deep within his soul. Now, I don't know what your life is like. I would love to have a conversation over dinner. How can we get these promises deeper in our soul? How can we find 
a way to get them to be a part of the fabric of our life and our community here. Because it's only when we trust in the promises of God that we will walk through the the refining fire of this world and come out ready to step into the glory of God. So we trust the justice of God, we trust the promises of God, and lastly, and this one's quick, don't stress, we trust the people of God. David was the one, he was lifted up, he's the anointed king, he's the guy, and yet David still needed Abigail. David still needed Abigail. You can be the anointed king of God and you can't go it alone. He needed Abigail to keep him from striking out on his own and to be centered back in God. So two lessons that we learn from this brilliant woman. One, we get to serve brothers and sisters by steering each other to faithfulness. The greatest gift that God has given you for your journey of faith, look around, it's everyone in this room. This is the body of Christ. These people are here to to spur you on to love and good deeds, to guide you in the ways of faithfulness, to call you back to the promises of God. So I hope we have conversations where I hear about your week and we laugh about something silly that happened to you, but I also hope that we have weighty conversations about our souls and we care deeply about the promises of God together. I hope that you get an opportunity to speak into one another's lives, not just in a vague sense, but in a specific sense. I hope we're journeying this journey of difficulty in this world together. David needed Abigail. If, if she hadn't been placed at this moment to speak this word that, you know, the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty, he would have made a, a terrible mistake and taken many lives. We desperately need each other. But the second thing is that we get to intercede on behalf of each other. We get to intercede on behalf of each other. Who stood between David and murder? It was Abigail speaking words to him, calling him back to the promises of God. And as Christian people, that's our call. We get to stand between the wicked Nabal of this world who is guaranteed certain death and King Jesus who is there with justice. And as we intercede with Jesus and say, God, please, would you save? Would you bring forgiveness? Would you soften hearts? Would you do the work that only you can do? We get the opportunity. We get the privilege of seeing people's eyes opened of their dark hearts becoming light again, of hardness giving way to softness, of eternal destinies being shifted to receive the forgiveness of God. Here's my little tagline. It's a bit cheesy, but it's worth it. Persevering prayer prevails. You got that? Persevering prayer prevails. Don't discount how powerful the prayers are of a righteous person, as James tells us. That widow that Jesus talked about who needed something from the judge, who just denied her. So she just annoyed him until he finally gave in and answered her. Persevering prayer prevails. Intercede for your friends and family and your community and the strangers that you meet. Go to God and ask him, beg him to save them because he answers, he, he does. I love hearing the story of Naomi with Lisa, just walking with her at playtime for many years and finally having an opportunity to see the lights go on. That's the spirit at work as she's been praying and serving. And there are stories all throughout this room of people. I, I got to talk to my godparents who are deeply not, not godly people on the weekend. And I just shared about answered prayer in my life. And my godmom, who I had no clue, was thinking these thoughts, thought, you know what? I've been praying about some things too, and I feel like God's answered. And as I prayed for her, I'm just seeing God start to turn the lights on. Persevering prayer prevails. Let's give ourselves over to praying for those. 
Now, I mentioned at the start that chapters 24 and 26 have similar events, but something shifted. And what shifted is that David has grown to trust God with depth. Let's be those people who trust God. Deep in the promises of God, handing over justice into His hands and doing it together, walking side by side. It's going to be hard. There's going to be difficulty in your world. But God promises so much more than you can imagine. Let's pray. Father Almighty, You are the God who made all things, who knows all things, and who guides all things to their their designated end. And as we wrestle with so much uncertainty in our lives, we pray that You might give us deep certainty in You. Would You even now just speak to us in the quiet of our hearts a promise or something that we need to weather this season that we're in? Please, God, would you take this 6 p.m. family and and shape us to be a, a family that walks through life trusting you together? Would you give us words for one another, maybe a word of rebuke, which is true the true way to love as we point each other to Jesus? Ultimately, God, would you lift our eyes to King Jesus to see that he is returning and he will bring all things to their perfected end. We trust you, God, and we pray all these things for your glory. Amen.